0: We are in Acts chapter twenty-four, and Paul is making his defense before Felix. In Acts chapter twenty-four, we're going to start reading from verse thirteen. We we actually covered uh, through verse fourteen last time, but I will start reading this time through verse 13, uh, back up at verse thirteen nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that's written in the prophets, and having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you to make accusation if they should have anything against me. Or else, let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council. Other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. Okay, so, last time we we reflected a lot on verse 14, the importance of the scriptures and the word of God, how Paul believed everything, everything that is written in the scriptures he said that, that I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and is written in the prophets. And how we have to come to that place to believe everything, absolutely everything that's written in this word. If we take this word to heart, if we make it our meditation and take it to heart and realize that it is not an idle word for us, but indeed it's our very life, as Moses wrote, we will do very well. Alright, let's pick it up from verse 15 then. Having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection both of the righteous and of the wicked. So what does Paul do? Paul speaks of his belief in the Scriptures and also of his utter belief in the resurrection. And in fact, if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Scriptures tell us that that is the most important fundamental of our faith. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So look what, look what it says. It says that there is a possibility... To believe in vain. If we don't hold fast, if we don't hold fast this word. Now what is the word in verse 3? For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He says this is the most important thing in verse 3. The most and first of importance is this. That Jesus died for our sins, that He was buried, and that He rose again. This is not some side issue. This is why Paul brings it up during his defense. He said, yes, of this way, I am, I, I am a follower of it. Meaning, I am a Christian, he tells Felix. Then he sa- tells Felix, I believe everything that is written in the Scriptures. And I'll start with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I believe in the resurrection. Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15 that it is possible to believe in vain if we don't believe in the resurrection. That's why it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, that we have to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that he has risen from the dead and we shall be saved. We have to believe in our heart that he's risen from the dead. It is fundamental to our belief system that He is risen from the dead. And then back in in Acts, chapter 24, it says that, in verse 15, He says there will be a a resurrection both of the righteous and of the wicked. And Jesus Himself said the same thing. If you turn to John, chapter 5, John, chapter 5, Jesus says the same thing. John 5, verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which, we are, in, in which in which, all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. And they will come forth, those who did the good, to a resurrection of life. And those who did the evil, to a resurrection of judgment. So that's what Jesus said. He said, there's going to come a time in John 5.28... When everyone who is in the tombs, everyone who has died, will hear His voice. I mean, imagine that. There are these graves that all that's left there is bones. There are graves where there are no bones even left. I mean, some have been cremated. There's no bones even left. But it says they will all hear His voice. And they will come forth. And Paul speaks about this in other portions. How God, as He made the body once before, He will make it again. So the Spirit is still alive. But now the flesh is going to come forth. And He's testified to us again from the Old Testament Scriptures. In Ezekiel, how He's able to have dead bodies come to life. He says they will come forth And those who did good to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil to a resurrection of judgment. But all will be raised. There will be a resurrection. If you don't believe it, then you don't believe the words of Jesus. And then what else can you not trust? Jesus said this would happen. Is it a marvel to you that He would put the body together? Well, He did it once before. So He's just doing again what He did before. Where He takes the atoms and the molecules and brings them together. It's really quite extraordinary how it can happen. He did it before. He will do it again. Jesus said this will happen. Turn to John chapter 11. This is the classic portion on the resurrection. John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in Me will never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus said, He Himself is the resurrection and the life. He Himself. It is the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ Himself that stands behind the fact of the resurrection that will take place of other human beings as well. As Jesus rose from the dead, He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He doesn't point us to some resurrection. Jesus says that He Himself is the resurrection. He demonstrated resurrection in His own flesh and He will bring others up with Him. He says, He who believes in Me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in Me will never die. Then He says to Mary, Do you believe this? And she says to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Well, that's an interesting reply. That really wasn't the answer to his question. He asked her, do you believe in the resurrection? She said, I believe you are the Christ who come into the world. Okay. Well, how about answering the question? You want credit for this? You have to answer the question. So then he demonstrates to her the very resurrection. Remember, when that loved one of yours, whether it be an adult or a child, when that loved one of yours who knows the Lord, when their body dies, they are not dead. It's just the Spirit lives on. But one day, the body also will be resurrected and will be reunited with the Spirit. That's what the Scriptures teach. Paul said, you want to know what I believe? I believe everything that's written in the Law and the Prophets. And I believe everything. Starting with the resurrection. That's the most important thing. I believe in the resurrection. I believe that Jesus has raised from the dead. And that there shall be a resurrection both of the good and of the evil. Everyone will rise from the dead. Everyone. Some to everlasting life. And some to everlasting judgment. And as much as that, you know, we don't like that and people say, well, you know, I can't believe in a God who would do this. It's too bad. It's outside our domain. We don't make the call on this. God chose it that way. That's His call, not our call. If it seems to you to be unmerciful, I assure you, study, study this God of the Bible. He is far more merciful than you would ever be. Far more merciful. Okay, let's turn back to Acts chapter 24. So he, he says in verse 15 of Acts 24, I believe in this resurrection. Then he says in verse 16, In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. A blameless conscience. What has this got to do with a defense? What has this got to do with Paul coming before Felix for a defense, where these people are saying he ought not to be allowed to live? Paul is saying, my conscience is perfectly clear. My conscience is perfectly clear. We dealt with this issue a few weeks ago. Because Paul, in his defense, brought up this very same topic of his conscience. And we will touch on it again because the scriptures repeat themselves. A clear conscience is critical to maintaining our faith, a clear conscience. God gives us opportunity. He speaks to our heart. He gives us opportunity to search our hearts. He says, Will you allow your hearts and your consciences to be clear? You can have a clear conscience. I see young people all the time in my office. And I watch their lives, particularly my graduate students, who I get to know much better because they work in my labs for four years. That's a long time. You get to know people. You write a lot of documents with them. You go over a lot with them. You spend a lot of time. And you get to know them. And you see how a clear conscience, to not have a clear conscience just sucks the life out of them. The practices that they will participate in over a four year period. And how it will draw the life right out of them. And the scriptures talk about how important it is for us as believers to maintain a clear conscience. Look in First Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1. Reading from verse 18. 1 Timothy 1.18 This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among those are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. So he says to Timothy, he says, Timothy, you are like a son to me. Let me tell you what you have to do. You have to keep faith and a good conscience. Because if you don't keep a good conscience, you're going to suffer shipwreck in regard to your faith. A lack of a good conscience will destroy your faith in God. Little by little, you will come to say, well, God doesn't really exist. He doesn't work in the lives of people. And if He does exist, He doesn't have much to do with me. If you don't keep a clear conscience. We have to keep a clear conscience. And we keep a clear conscience by doing what the Scriptures say. We just took the Lord's Supper today in in the church service. Paul says, let a man examine himself... And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let a man examine himself. And if you judge yourself rightly, if you judge the body rightly, if a man judges himself, he doesn't have to undergo judgment. And when we are judged, we are disciplined. We can be free from the judgment by examining our own conscience. Saying, God, what are you speaking to me? We don't wake up in the morning... And open our eyes and say, I think I will grossly sin against God today. We don't do that. It comes by decisions that we make throughout that day, throughout that week, throughout that year. It comes by decisions we make. And before we make the decision to sin, The Holy Spirit has already been speaking to our heart because it knows where our mind is beginning to go toward. And the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts and says, that's not the way. Don't go that way. Don't go that way. If we hear it, we are saved. If we don't, we fall into great, great troubles. And... If we don't observe it, what happens is, there's a searing of the conscience. And then when we take the Lord's supper, we have this chance to reflect once again and to say, Lord, have I gone astray? Lord, forgive me and lead me in the way everlasting. Paul says, I maintain a clear conscience. That got him in a lot of trouble before. The last time during his defense to the Sanhedrin he said that they smacked him across his face because they wondered how could anybody be so bold as to say they have a perfectly clear conscience but if they knew the power of God you can have a perfectly clear conscience because you can walk in repentance toward God and maintain a perfectly clear conscience Paul said my conscience is clear and he speaks about a clear conscience how it's fundamental to our faith to maintain that clear conscience now let's look back at Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24, reading from verse 16. He says, A blameless conscience both before God and before men. We must maintain it before God and also before men. You know, so many times I will blow it, and I will go back to the person who I've blown it toward, and I'll say, I am so sorry. And I find that very often it's the people closest to me that I have to go back to. My family. Because they live with me. They see me. Or the people that I work with. And you know, I'm amazed at how ready ready they are to forgive me. Say It's alright. It's okay. I understand. So ready to forgive me. God is so ready to forgive me. I never feel as if he's condemning me. He is right there. And I may surprise my family. I may surprise my coworkers with my actions, but I don't surprise God. He knows my feet of clay, He knows my weakness. So the one who's least surprised about my failures is God. Sometimes the one who is most hurt by this is me. And though those others are so often ready to to forgive me, it is amazing how quick we are in this culture to forgive people offenses when they say they're sorry that they've done wrong. I mean, even politicians have learned that if you ask the public to forgive you, the American public is very quick to forgive. You know who's the hardest judge? It's myself. You know, I will just ride this thing and ride this thing. You know, and I'll carry this, and everyone around me who I've forget forgiven, who, who who has forgiven me, is done with it. But I ride this thing myself. Does this ever happen to you? Where you 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 commit some sin, and it's just it's just let me see how many times, how bloody I can make my back. By beating myself with these chains before I'll forgive it. Because before I'll forgive myself and move on. Before I will receive God's forgiveness and move on. So much of my struggle, I see, is with myself. Will I accept God's forgiveness and the forgiveness granted to me by those who I've offended and move on with this? Or do I feel like I have to do six months of penance here? Paul said, I have a perfectly good conscience before God and before men. And think about this. Paul was a pretty bad guy. Paul would take Christians and have them killed because of their witness. Paul, to to just deal with them in Jerusalem wasn't enough. He was on his way to Damascus to deal with Jews who believed in this Jesus. I mean, if anyone... If anyone should have been beating himself up his whole life, it was Paul. But Paul says, I have a perfectly good conscience. You look at it. Paul, maybe you should feel more bad about yourself. But he wouldn't do it. He could receive the forgiveness and move on. I'm amazed at David. David falls into adultery even when his own advisors told him. He says, That is Bathsheba the wife of Uriah, the guy who's out fighting your battles. And when he said that, David immediately knew that that was the wife of one of his mighty men. And that was the daughter of one of his mighty men. Bathsheba's father was one of David's mighty men as well. So both his, her husband and her father were out fighting for David. And her grandfather was Ahithophel, David's close advisor. So her husband, her father, and her grandfather were all known to David. That's why when his advisor said, he said, who's that beautiful woman? He says, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And in spite of that, he forced himself upon her, and he had Uriah killed. That was the son-in-law of his other mighty mighty man, and that was the grandson-in-law of his close advisor, Ahithophel. So it was no wonder that Ahithophel took Absalom's side during the rebellion. So the amazing thing, though, is after all of this, David could receive the forgiveness of God and go on with his life. Anyone else would be beating themselves up so bad, they'd never be able to recover. But what I am amazed with David is he was able to move on, to accept the forgiveness of God and move on. One day, you will do something that may really surprise yourself. Some failure. And remember this. Will you be able to receive God's forgiveness and move on? Because God has forgiven you. You haven't surprised Him And he says, you can walk before me in a perfectly good conscience. You need not spend five years beating yourself up. You can walk on. This is an amazing forgiveness that we do not deserve. But it is granted to us. An amazing forgiveness that we don't deserve. But God grants it to us because of the mercies of Jesus Christ. Let's read on in Acts chapter 24, verse 17. Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. We know about the offerings from other portions. He was offering up the Nazarite vow, and there were several offerings involved. It was like a five or seven day event. Five days he was into this before he'd gotten picked up. But here is an indication that he also came to bring alms, that's gifts of charity to the poor. This is the first reference we have of it. Why did he come back to Jerusalem? Two reasons. To offer up offerings and to bring alms, gifts to the poor. Paul had accumulated gifts. He had worked while he was on the mission field. Maybe gifts were given to him. And he was coming to give gifts to the poor. It is expected that we share with others. It is expected of us to do this. In Matthew chapter 6, in this Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, Jesus said, So, when you give to the poor, so, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you and like the hypocrites do, and so on. He says, when you give to the poor. He doesn't say, if, if you should so happen to give to the poor, if you should happen to have change in your pocket... He says, when you give to the poor, it is an act that you plan on. It is an act that you plan on of giving to those, giving to others. It is so easy today. I don't even have to go to any great lengths. I have it... You you, you know, my bill pay is all online. And you just set it so that when the paycheck comes in, the portions go out. They go out to to the the poor and different mission organizations around the world. You don't even have to do anything. You don't even have to write the check anymore. just, boom, it's just gone. just gets sent out. You just set this thing once. This giving to the poor. When you give to the poor, Jesus says. In Matthew 6, 6, He says, But you, when you pray, go into your inner room. He says, when you pray. He doesn't say, if you should happen to pray. When you pray, it is a calculated thing. This is my prayer time. We see that in the book of Acts. It says that they were going up to pray at the hour of prayer. In Matthew six seventeen, it says, but you, when you fast, anoint your head with oil and wash your face. So he says, when you fast, when you pray, when you give alms, It is an expectation that you're doing it. There is an expectation upon us as believers that we will set aside times of fasting. Not when people tell us to fast, but when we are moved to fast and pray for something. We set aside times of prayer when we pray. And we set aside money to give. These are alms. Alms are gifts to the poor. They're different than just ties to your local church. That we give too. But there are gifts that we reserve for the poor. Paul said, I came to present offerings. These are offerings to God. And then these offerings came with great financial commitments along with those offerings. These cost money. You had to buy an animal to kill. And remember, if it wasn't a good animal, God considered it an abomination. So even if He wasn't offering up as a blood sacrifice, there were plenty of offerings that He wasn't offering for sin. It wasn't as a, as a blood sacrifice for sin, but He was making offerings. And if it bothers you, why was He in the temple making offerings? Remember, I told you, don't let it bother you. He was a Jew. He wasn't doing this as a sacrifice for His sins, but He was offering to God according to the practices of a Jew, and He said He was of the sect of the Pharisees. doesn't say He used to be. He said He... He says, "I am a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees." But he also had gifts set aside for the poor. This is a good thing. You say, "Well, you know, I'm pretty poor myself. Well, set aside something for them. Give something. You want to know where to give? I can make suggestions. There's a there's a uh, uh, this casa de la bueno samaritano." Is that pretty good? (laughs) We have in the church where where doctors and pharmacists in the church and dentists give their time to take care of some of the those poor in the Hispanic community around here. They need money for that. Everyone there donates their time, but they also need money for that because they buy the pharmaceuticals that they give out freely. They buy the vaccinations that they give out freely. You can certainly set aside $5 a month for that, or $5 a week for that. You certainly have that much. Set aside something for that. So if you don't have a convenient mechanism for giving, just have the check automatically sent. Every bank I know of has online, online banking. And they do this because they get the interest on this in the meantime, between the time they take it out of your accountant, but the time, you know, it's transferred or the check is cash. So it's a big business for them. And get the money sent to the poor. It is a good thing to do. Then he says in verse 18 of Acts chapter 24, In which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified, without any crowd or uproar. So here He was, purified in the temple. What do you mean, purified, Paul? You're purified by the blood of Christ. What is this that you had to be purified to be in the temple? Remember, He's a Jew. His practices are different than your practices. He went through some purification protocol. And He said, They found Me occupied in the temple. Paul was occupied in his work of offering up offerings to God as part of his spiritual worship. He was occupied doing that. Occupied means that he was working at it. There was some occupation here. There was some work involved. So in other words, he wasn't just sitting in the temple and just... No, he was occupied. There was some work of service here in the temple. We think that we do our work of service by coming and sitting. Oh God, aren't you happy with me? I sat here for an hour. God, be happy. No, there is a work of service. I was occupied in the temple. You you had to do this, you had to do this offering, and offer this up, and say these prayers, and lots of little things you had to say and do. That that was Paul's expression of worship to his God and his Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was occupied in the temple. If you are not occupied in some act of worship, you're unemployed. You're not properly employed. You need to be occupied in some act of worship. Where you give of yourself in worship to God each week. Paul was occupied in this. There was an act of worship here. It is a good thing. It is a proper thing to do. And to, tell, to say that you're too busy is wrong. You're not too busy. I was in school, and I attended a local church, and I was active, and I did things to serve God on campus. This is what I did. And amazingly God blessed. Amazingly God blessed. I remember, you know, I just give you a short testimony. I was struggling in freshman chemistry because I took chemistry in a regular high school and I took regular chemistry. I don't even think they had A P chemistry in those days. Did they even have it? I don't I'd never heard of this A P thing. And so I took regular chemistry, but there were people that came from high schools where their High school teachers were probably working far too hard and they learned far too much. Far more than they were supposed to have learned. And for some reason, because I said I was a chemistry major and I happened to meet a chemistry professor when I first joined as a freshman, he advised me, oh, go into the advanced class. I didn't need to be in the advanced class. I just needed to be in with the masses. And here I was struggling, just struggling in this class. And I got saved on November 7th of my freshman year. So, so it was it was halfway into the semester, and I remember praying, God help me, God. I was just having such trouble understanding, and I got a B plus at that end end of that semester, and I started serving God and 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 went to a local church and started serving God, and and what happ- what happened was God blessed my work so much, the blessing of the work was there. So I would serve on campus and think, how am I going to get all this done? But God blessed. God blessed so much that by the time I graduated, of all the chemistry students, somehow I was number one. And I took all the graduate courses that I could take. As an undergrad, I took all the graduate courses. When I got to graduate school, now I was ahead of everybody. But God blessed so much. I saw the hand of God. So I think that when people say, well, I'm too busy to do this, I'm too busy to have an active ministry, I'm too busy to go to church, that they lose out. The Bible clearly says that the eyes of the Lord, His eyes, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the entire earth to strongly support those whose heart is completely His. So that God looks down from heaven He says, "Oh." Angels, come here. look at that guy. Just go, bless him, bless him, look at him. Bless him. That's what the Bible says God does. His eyes move to and fro throughout the entire earth to strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And we sell ourselves short when we think that we are too occupied to even be at all occupied with his business. To offer up a morning to present offerings of worship to Him. To offer up a few hours during the week to be involved in some ministry where you're giving out of yourself to others. To spend some time alone with Him each day. If we are too occupied to be occupied with Him, we lose out. Because his eyes are there to support. Looking there to support those whose heart is completely his. Paul said, I was occupied in God's business. He had been on the mission field for two and a half years, and that was the end of his third missionary journey. He had been beat up and spit on and, 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 and been in bonds and everything. You'd think he'd come back to Jerusalem and say... I am tired. Just minister to me. Now's my receiving time. No, he's occupied in service to God. Amazing. Amazing the example we have. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word, for the truth of the scriptures. They are so true. Father, thank You for the beauties of the Scriptures and the beauty of Your Word. Father, I pray for these young people that they would be occupied with You and with service to You and so that they too could experience the blessing of having You pour out support for them. Father, I pray that You would cause them to be gracious, to give alms, to be givers. And as the Scriptures say, those who give to the poor, give to the Lord, and He will repay them. Father, that You would give them giving hearts so that they could see Your gracious hand of repayment. And Father, I pray that You would so work and move, so work and move in their lives, cause them to follow these examples that are laid before us in the Scriptures of having a good conscience, of maintaining that good conscience before God and before men. And Father, I thank You for the truth of the resurrection, that we can take hold of that truth that Jesus has been raised from the dead And there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked because of Him, because of Jesus who says, I am the resurrection and the life. Thank you, Lord, that you demonstrated the resurrection and you live forever. Lord, I pray for these young people that you cause them to seek you and to seek your face. In the name of Jesus, amen.